You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. Today's episode, John is joined by Gregory Benford and Larry Niven. Professor Gregory Benford is a physicist, educator, and author. He received a Bachelor of Science from the University of Oklahoma and then attended the University of California, San Diego, where he received his PhD. A two time winner of the Nebula Award, Benford has also won the John W. Campbell Award. He is the author of over 20 novels. He is a professor of physics at the University of California, Irvine. Larry Niven's best-known work is Ringworld, which received the Hugo, Locus, Dittmar and Nebula Awards. He won his first Hugo Award for Best Short Story for Neutron Star in 1967. From both Gregory Benford and Larry Niven comes a thrilling hard science fiction series, Bowl of Heaven, that follows a human expedition to another star system which is suddenly interrupted by a gigantic artifact floating in interstellar space. The bowl-shaped structure engulfs an entire star and has a habitable area equivalent to many millions of Earths. Gregory Benford and Larry Niven, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yes. Now, gentlemen, for some years now, you have been working together on a trilogy. And this trilogy, which comprises three books now, Bowl of Heaven, Ship Star, and Glorious, deals with a very interesting uh, hypothetical technology that's one of the more up-to-date ones as far as speculative tech goes because, you know, we've all heard of Dyson spheres and even, of course, Niven rings and things like that. But now this is a more of a reimagining of a Shkadov thruster, but one that's much more stable or would seem to be more stable. Can you give me an overview of the bowl of heaven? Sure. You want to picture a... Uh half of a Dyson sphere. It isn't quite that, but it, but it comes out like that once you, once you, before you do the fiddling. The, you've, uh, you've spun it for gravity, so it, uh, it comes out looking like a ring world with a lid. And the lid is all mirror. You focus, uh, should I remind you what a, what a ring world is? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a ribbon around a star. 93 million miles in radius, 600 million miles around. Uh, I made it a million miles across, and uh, it's spun for gravity at 770 miles per second. There's a lot more detail to be dealt with, but that's that's most of it. It turns out if you if you want to build a Dyson sphere and you're not allowed artificial, you're not allowed generated gravity, which relativity forbids. You wind up colonizing mostly the uh, the rim, the equator of a Dyson sphere is, is all that's useful because you have to spin it for gravity and, uh, and, and all of the atmosphere winds up at the equator. A half a Dyson sphere still comes out like that. There's, it's a ring world with a, with a, with a lid. The, the mirrors focus on your star, generating a flare. The flare flows through a hole in the uh, 
in in the wok shape and provides you your, your uh, thrust. You have a space a star a ship star, a, a star a star that behaves like a spacecraft. This the, the bowl of heaven has been cruising the galaxy since it was built by a race of di a race of intelligent dinosaurs with some help from an alien race in the uh, in the uh, cometary halo, and it was built around Sol's companion star. Our assumption is 65 million years ago, 100, 100 million uh, years ago, something like that. Sol was was a two was a was a binary system with planets around the other star too. Those planets were turned into a half of a Dyson sphere and presently shaped, for, shaped to become a ship. That's the vole of heaven. And it's been cruising around the, around the stars for 100 million, million or 200 million years. We never established that. Now, in that amount of time, now, of course, there's some science behind that. There are some scientists that think perhaps there once was a companion star to the sun. Sure, we're both good at playing with science. Oh, yes. And in, the, the reality of it is that most stars tend to form in binary systems, so there's no reason to, to think that the sun might not have had a companion at one time, and maybe we even captured a planet. That's one of the ideas behind this Planet Nine business. Exactly. You can't prove it ain't so. That's right. Now, just <laughs> that's a good place for science fiction to go. Now, the Bowl of Heaven, how far is this roughly from Sol now? Greg, how far did we establish? It's several tens of light years away from now it is it's traveling it's a long, long time yeah it it's moving in the range of about a thousand kilometers a second which is faster than stars go around the galaxy so it can cruise the galaxy literally at uh, the beginning of uh, the first novel bowl of heaven the humans are headed toward a, uh, a earth-like world around stars several tens of light years away uh, moving opposite to the speed of uh, the general galactic rotation. And they don't see this contraption, the bowl of heaven, until they actually get up right alongside it, which is highly suggestive because they're headed toward the same destination. And they didn't see the bowl of heaven because they were behind it. So they couldn't see its star. And the jet coming through the, the knot hole at the bottom of the bowl of heaven is not luminous enough that it would have attracted attention, particularly since people on a starship are not actually astronomers. <laughs> they're, they're navigators. And so the book, the, the, the book opens with the discovery off to the side of this strange contraption, which they had not been aware of. And so, of course, at the very beginning of the novel, we set up this series of questions implied, but not directly stated. That's how you unfold them story after all you don't tell the reader everything in the first paragraph now speeds now i know one of the one of the criticisms that ultimately came out of the shkadov thruster was that it really wouldn't end up producing all that much speed all that much acceleration but the bowl of heaven is different this seems likely to produce significantly more how fast can this thing go is i mean are we talking serious relativistic speeds or you know uh, no uh, uh, I did these calculations, by the way. The, there are a lot of things wrong with trying to go, say, even at 1% of the speed of light. Uh, and the major thing that happens is that you get 
your face push it in, literally. Um, the, the magnetosphere of the star, which they're following, will get pressed all the way back to the star and it will change the dynamics. And the, the major thing is that you don't want such large scale pressures pushing on the whole system. It's just harder to handle high, high accelerations and more particularly to high speeds. I mean, the Earth's magnetosphere terminates out about 120 astronomical units out from, from the sun. We're one astronomical unit out. So there's this bow shock, which we've detected ahead of our whole solar system where a lot of plasma violence occurs. Specifically, it's two plasma streams running into each other, the interstellar plasma and then our own confined plasma, or rather the outflow of the plasma from the sun. Remember, the sun is always pushing material out. That's what solar storms are. So that you've got a big issue if you try to go at enormous high speeds. Remember, 1% of the speed of light is 3 times 10 to 3,000 kilometers a second. And that's a lot already. The, that's kilometers a second, by the way. The, the solar system speeds are on the scale of 10 kilometers a second. So you, that's what we're talking about here. And so it, it's an artful contrivance, <laughs> I would say, because the inhabitants of the bowl of heaven want to cruise around the galaxy and visit places, but they don't want to do it too fast because it's too hard to manage. It's an engineering issue. Now, how do they deal with time? Do they simply have time frames of living that are just so long that it doesn't matter, or do they just simply go generation to generation? Very rigid social organization. Yes, exactly. Uh, When Greg talks about this being a a smart, a big smart object rather than a big dumb object, he means that it requires constant attendance. You got to keep it stable. You got to guard that flare as it goes through through the hole so it doesn't bury it. Uh, over inhabited territory. This has to be done for hundreds of millions of years. So, big smart object. Right. And a lot of a, a rigid social hierarchy that really can't, uh, is uh, accustomed to dealing with intruders. So that's what we're, what our people have gotten into. Yes, the, the, we, Larry and I have an article about this in the latest issue of Analog Magazine with a bunch of art, by the way, that comes from the the three novels, art we commissioned ourselves from two different artists. But the piece we wrote, and it's the latest analog, we explained some of this in good detail, I think. It opens with a quotation from one of my oldest friends who, alas, died this year, Freeman Dyson, in January. And here's the quote. My rule is there is nothing so big nor so crazy that one out of a million technological societies may not feel itself driven to do, provided it is physically possible. <laughs> and this is from an essay he wrote over half a century ago uh, called The Search for Extraterrestrial Technology. And to me, that's always been uh, my guidepost. I've, I've always thought that was an audacious suggestion to try to imagine really strange, different, huge things that aliens, given enough time, might do. By the way, uh, I became aware of this because I met Freeman Dyson in 1963 when I was uh, just beginning graduate school at UC San Diego. And Fred Dyson was a visiting professor there. And so I had many great conversations with him back when so many of these ideas were just starting to happen. For, for example, SETI. And Dyson always, has always remained to, to the faith that 
Aliens could do all kinds of strange things that we can't anticipate. Yeah, that's one reason he invented the Dyson Sphere. Mm -hmm. So Larry and I just kicked around these ideas. I remember long ago, over a decade ago, we yeah. were having dinner and I said, you know, what, what could be bigger and grander and stranger than Ringworld? So we started to fool around with these ideas. And uh, the trick about it is that the ring world ain't going nowhere, but the bowl of heaven is. And that implies completely different alien psychology. What about materials to create such an object like this? This is reminiscent of ring world with Scrith, that to do this, you're going to need some... audio just cut off for me. Let's uh, just hold here until we get it back. Okay. Are Let's we see. back to normal? Yeah. Okay. Um, we outsource, let's put it this way, we, we prefer to outsource the material questions to MIT. Uh, <laughs> but I looked into this in detail. Remember, the, the ring world already implies structural materials vastly better than what we can do. Specifically, they can carry far more straps. Well, so does the bowl of heaven for similar reasons. You've got to spin it in order to have centrifugal gravity. But notice in a bowl, Near the pole of the bowl, that is where the knothole is, there's almost no center of gravity because you're very close to the axis. Out on the rim, I've forgotten the number we used, Larry, it was something like two-thirds of a G at the, at the rim. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, uh, nine-tenths, you know, I think. Nine-tenths, Dinosaurs yeah. like, it, like it light. Yes. If you're big and massive, you'd like a little less gravity. So, so point is, it, it has different gravitational, sorry, centrifugal gravitational stresses all along the bowl, which you've got to compensate for. You see, the buildings on, on Earth are simple in the sense that gravity doesn't vary along the building, but it does in the bowl of heaven. And therefore, the slope of the land does, too. So materials, yes, you need super materials. But that's now a given, thanks to Ringworld. And of course, what they're building it from is the planets of the second sun. Bowl of Heaven has no planets around it, uh, no no asteroids, nothing that might damage it that's in orbit. Right. You still have to watch for on, oncoming objects. Right. And they have gamma ray lasers, which don't exist now, but could, to knock off stuff that's headed toward the bowl. You, you've got to police your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Now, with the with the uh, with the bowl of heaven, the other issue is confining that beam you're getting off of that star. This presumably would be done magnetically. Now, this might be something that we could do on a hugely grand scale, but could we actually create with where we are now a confinement of solar ejecta that you're pushing off of the star? Well, we actually know how to do this. Um, after all, I'm a plasma physicist who spent decades working on galactic jets, which are self-contained long streams of plasma in which the magnetic field is the governing constraint. I worked on this when I was at the, uh, a postdoc and, and uh, a staff physicist at the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory in Livermore. And I've done a whole lot of work since I became a professor at UC Irvine to do this in the lab as well as in theory. There are magnetically confined lab jets that are tens of meters long. But more to the point, the reason behind the thinking here is that there are galactic scale jets that come out of the spinning disks around black holes at the centers of galaxies, which are millions of light years long and are confined and are semi-stable. They wobble a bit, but they don't fly apart. 
For example, uh, I got into this when I was a fellow at Cambridge, England in 1976, and the um, radio astronomers there at the Institute for Astronomy had just detected in the radio frequencies the jet coming out of the galaxy M87, which is over a million light years long. <laughs> and that jet at the very close into the core of the galaxy had already been seen in the the optical, that is, it was a visual object. It had been discovered decades before, but nobody really knew that it was a jet that was magnetically confined. In fact, there was no explanation for it. Well, there we now know many hundreds of such jets. We know that the black hole at the center of our galaxy, roughly a million or two years ago, produced a jet. We can see the relic remnant radiation from the jet that has stopped flowing and is decaying, but it still radiates in, in, in the uh, microwave region, of uh, the same region of the spectrum, by the way, that's used by your cell phone. And so we know these things happen and nature makes them without any help. <laughs> they naturally evolve in the same way that the solar coronal arches on the surface of our sun naturally evolve. They're bigger by far than the earth and they're organized structures made out of plasma. Uh, when you think about it, the nuclear fusion program is how to get a fusion burn in a magnetic confinement. And we've spent many billions of dollars trying to do that as a source of power for ourselves. So these techniques actually exist. They really work. All I did was turn them over to a distant authority, the figures, the aliens that run the bowl of heaven. And one of the major things that Larry has done for the book is that he and I, but mostly he, invented all these different aliens that are adapted to the pole. And some of them were really completely un unexpected. I mean, intelligences that are that look exactly like rocks, intelligences that look like big fields of ice, and they're very long lived intelligences that actually govern the jet that comes off the star, which are plasma intelligences. And we didn't reveal that until I think the second book, wasn't it, Larry? And uh, then we use it again in the third. Yes, second book, also the ice mines. The ice mines originated in in the, in the cometary halos of the two stars, and helped to build the, the bowl of heaven itself. Uh, right. Not, not by brute force. The muscle was supplied by the dinosaurs. Right now, all are mostly bird-like. Yeah. whatever their size, and, are, and we called them big birds. Do these, do these intelligences know the whole picture, or do they only know compartmentalized parts of what they're supposed to do to keep the world running or create it? We didn't need to get that complicated. We got complicated enough uh, without dealing with secrets being held here and there in, right. in various of the societies. It's, it's worth noting that the folk, as they call themselves, the large bird-like entities descended from dinosaurs, just as, by the way, our birds are descended from dinosaurs, they think they run the bowl. And it's convenient for them to think so, but it's not true. Interesting. So does anyone, is there is there a character somewhere in there that does know that, that actually does run it? Well, uh, there are several we different don't entities. know that. Yeah. You're, well, Larry already said that the ice mines run part of the bowl and the what we, the plasma beings to whom we termed the diaphanous because they're, they're very thin plasmas 
They don't have a big mass density, but they're huge, just like the galactic jets that exist in our universe. The, the, the point is they all run parts of it. It's, you, you learn to delegate, right? So the, they exist in, in this kind of cooperative scheme in which they're all managing part of the bowl because specialization is essential. By the way, human societies are like that. The people who run for, say, international banking are not like the people who fix your plumbing and so on. But it would seem to me that this sort of a society or this, this social construction would be inherently uh, interested in not waging a war against each other for any sort of disagreements. Because if they did that, then they would neglect the structure, which would probably fairly rapidly fall apart, right? All exactly. of this is true. And all of this is one of the reasons why the society is so rigidly governed. Yes, but, but, but part of it is that it's not top-down control, but rather it's mutual control, the same way large human societies work. After all, we're a species that only a couple of hundred thousand years ago ran communities on a scale of hundreds of people, right? Now we have societies that run both billions of people, but we've managed to do it cooperatively. That's really the deep human secret. We did describe a sort of a, of a quick war, uh, war in uh, in the uh, novel Glorious, the third the third novel in the series. Uh, yes, war war fought with black holes and a quick negotiation to stop more of it happening. Right. Yeah, that was uh, your idea, as I recall, Larry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean. You want to bring out the big guns, but you don't want to fire them very often. I mean, look, uh, human beings are very much like this, you know. I was very aware growing up that big intellects like Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell said in a, in a public declaration that the only way to save humanity from a nuclear fusion war was to give all the weapons to the United Nations. And otherwise, Russell said, predicted that that civilization would cease to exist in a large hydrogen bomb war by 1960. He made this prediction, I think, in 1952, showing that even smart people couldn't see that cooperative large-scale endeavors could be stable. And we still haven't had such a war. We still don't know quite how we got to be so stable. Um, I remember a science fiction story (laughs) in which the aliens have... uh, come from interstellar space, contacted Earth, and, and what they want to know is, how do we do it? How, right. how do we avoid covering the, the surface of the Earth with craters? I've forgotten who wrote that story, but I remember it. Yeah, brilliant. Well, the point is that it's not obvious that we've been able to do it so well, but I, I would su- suggest that the real motive is fear. You yeah. don't want to start a war that you can't predict the outcome of. And I suppose there is some social evidence for that because we tend to limit our wars to conventional weapons these days, even though many countries yeah. possess abilities far and beyond that. And that goes back even to World War II, where nobody broke out the chemical weapons, although they may have gotten close to it. True. And the, the, the actually, World War II is a perfect example of the bad example of causing a lot of good. That is, it was started by the, the fascist parties in 1939 who thought they could fight and win a war in a year and they were wrong and they overextended and got the stuffing beaten out of them within six years 
and it was only put an end to by the use of nuclear weapons. Right, so the one, the one weapon of mass destruction that that was used, and it was only used twice. Yes, and I lived in occupied Japan, also occupied Germany later, starting in 1950, and I was very aware of this background because it was ever present in Japan. Because I got to speak to Japanese about it and the circumstances, and it it really struck me of how an original weird outcome it was. You use this weapon once; it's never been used again, which is the reason for this long peace we've had for uh, over 80 years now. And indeed,、uh, chemical and biological weapons, or at least chemical weapons, were used in World War One, but not since. That's right. We can learn from experience, and that the brilliance of the use of the two A bombs—they call them, although they're not atomic, they're nuclear—is that we, it provided an object lesson. Don't do this. That has really proved the flowering of this great golden age we've all lived through. Look at it this way: the first part of this 20th century was a slaughterhouse. Two of the the two largest wars in history, and everyone assumed it was going to keep on that way, and they were so frightened that it didn't keep on that way. We can learn. I should say I should say they have been used in in regards to chemical weapons, but only in very small regional conflicts. It isn't、wow. to the level of World War One, where it was commonly being used all across the battlefield. Now, I wanted to ask you: Have you guys thought about the Bowl of Heaven as a techno signature? Say Dyson was right, and someone has built something like this. It would seem to me that would be one heck of a techno signature. That it'd be very obvious. What would we look for if we were looking for a bowl of heaven? Well, point is, as the novel opens, they didn't see it coming literally because they were blinded by the bowl itself. They couldn't see the star. But it would look strange if you're looking on the other side at the star, and then you have this big luminous object surrounding it. That is very strange. It does not look like a planetary system. Uh, so if it's coming toward you, you know, if you have telescopes,、yes. and you are worried about it. And by the way, that's what happens in the third novel, Glorious, because Glory is the name the humans use for the solar system they were originally headed for, and the bowl is too. So in the third volume, they actually arrive at Glory, and they find out it's another kind of strange giant contraption, which、uh, we'll leave you to discover, <laughs> because it took us. What was it, Larry? Almost a decade to think up what was that glory. Decade to cover the three novels. Gregory Benford was needed for this book, or for Glory, Glory, and, and Glorious at any rate,、uh, because we wa- we wanted to put in a、uh, a gravity wave generating system.、Uh, right. Certain solar systems can communicate by gravity waves, and it took a plasma physicist to design one. Yeah, who's also written some papers in general relativity? No, right. You know what we did was play catch-up ball. It was obvious、mm-hmm. to me that gravitational waves were coming soon. Well, they didn't actually start until 2016, the first attraction at LIGO, exactly a century after Einstein、um, rolled out the general theory of relativity, and even Einstein thought that. Such waves could never be detected. They were just too hard to see. Well, it took a century. Okay, but it, we did it. So I, I knew that was coming, and we, and we decided to use that. No one had ever used in science fiction or anywhere else the idea of communication with these waves. 
by the way, when electromagnetism was detected uh, by uh, Heinrich Hertz, he predicted that it would never be used to communicate because it was too weak. <laughs> People have forgotten that. Hertz was one of the one of the minds to make this kind of mistake. That That's was definitely right. that was definitely one of the great mistakes was Heinrich Hertz uh, in science of of not well, realizing the utility of of, of uh, radio. Now you wrote, uh, Dr. Benford, you wrote a paper on a gravitational wave transmitter, right? Yes, right. Yes. Yeah, so with my old high school buddy from Dallas, uh, Al Jackson, who has a PhD in general relativity from the University of Texas. Well, how does that work? Give me an overview of how how you might create a gravitational wave signal that we could detect. It's like the old recipe for a boy, for a garnished rabbit. First sign is first catch a rabbit. Well, to make a gravitational wave radiator, you have to catch a black hole because they're the only compact matter mass sources you could use to radiate a significant power. And it's not an accident that the first gravitational waves detected are from the collision of black holes and now from neutron stars. Neutron stars uh, and stars between them and also with black holes. So the trick is you take black holes, let's say the mass of the Earth, which are only a few millimeters across. It's like a speck of dust, really. But if they swing near each other, they radiate a lot of gravitational radiation, just like electrons when they pass near each other radiate electromagnetic waves from, through their charge. So we started with that. First, find some black holes, then manipulate them and keep swinging them by each other to make them radiate. That's the whole scheme, really. And we solved the equations of general relativity in the regime appropriate to this. That is, the wavelength of a radiator is on the same size scale as the, um, the system. And so these black holes operate on scales of a few meters. And so the wavelength of their radiation is a few meters. In gravitational waves we've detected at LIGO, the, the, the scale is tens of kilometers or bigger. So it's a much longer wavelength, but we used equations appropriate to very short wavelengths, uh, which of course we can't detect short wavelength gravitational waves now, but in this future, advanced smart aliens can. And in fact, there are even diagrams in the third volume glorious showing how this happens uh, now does, is this a likely form of communication say we could detect those with much much better instrumentation than we have that we could detect this do you think it's possible that that's the typical way alien civilizations communicate and that they don't really use radio at some point they go with gravitational waves is that feasible i'd say it's not very likely it takes too much energy it's it's about as likely as uh, as interstellar flight yeah Remember, though, all of our assumptions are predicated on our present understanding of technology. In the 1800s, early 1800s, philosophers were asked to say, what can we never find out? And one of their ideas was, we'll never know the contents of the other stars. Because, of course, they didn't know about spectral lines. And so that, was, that prediction was disproved within less than half a century. <laughs> I mean, as an example of stuff you'll never find out, it's really bad example. But of course, it, the whole thing was an idea of some guys doing metaphysics in Germany. The philosophers are always the last to hear the news. So true. <laughs> now, with the gravitational wave transmitter, though, and say you were going to go through all the trouble to create one that 
you know, say you think, well, this, you know, gravitational transmitter will transmit anywhere. It can't be absorbed. It's people are going to see it. What kind right. of messages do you think, would you speculate that alien civilizations would try to convey to other civilizations that might be out there? Well, that's in Glorious too. We have a few suggestions about things that only the upper class, gravitational wave community, wants to talk about this subject because it doesn't want to give any bad ideas to the lower class electromagnetic communities, such as don't do experiments that endanger the structure of the universe and will re result in the fracturing of space-time, for example. Now, you also had mentioned something like a tombstone, where you might just say, look at our greatness, we can create these waves. And maybe there wouldn't even be a message in that. They just were creating it to where it was obviously artificially created gravitational waves with no message other than we were a fantastic civilization and we may or may not be here anymore. Right. I wrote a whole book about this called Deep Time, and I, I noted that all of the long live messages we get from humanity going back thousands of years are of two kinds. One is, here is our best. Here's the statue of Nefertiti or the Sphinx beside the pyramids. And the other messages are, Kilroy was here. <laughs> and no more than that. Just literally, the most common long-term surviving message is just a name. <laughs> I saw one on the screen in a Roman city in Turkey. And here was the name of, of, of what appeared to be some kind of officer in the Roman army who had carved his name into the wall of a latrine. By the way, it was a latrine for a whorehouse. Which is astonishing because his message got through. <laughs> you know, 2,000 <laughs> years later, there it is. <laughs> no, yeah. uh, no, it's actually quite brilliant. It's on <laughs> the wall of a, a ball. Uh, yeah, the wall well, he, was sitting, is, he was sitting is on a toilet and right there his name. <laughs> for anyone who needs to go to the bathroom. Right. Which boils down to everybody. Right. But apparently he spent quite a bit of time there because it was carved into fairly hard stone. <laughs> you got to wonder about uh, either he had a bad case of, of uh, constipation <laughs> or he visited there several times. Yeah, or diarrhea. Yeah. So. <laughs> From humble beginnings, long live messages can come. I, actually, I never put any of this in the book, did I, Larry? I don't think I've ever mentioned this stuff in it. Of course, I wrote a whole book about it, Deep Time. Gosh, of course, we're still speculating. Yeah, I still speculating. You don't stop thinking about a book just because you finished it. That's true. And, and that's why we're thinking of maybe doing an anthology of stories set in the Bowl of Heaven universe and welcome other people into it but both Larry and I would write a story or two for it yeah. just to let other people play in the same playground, a, a practice that Larry started long ago with his known space series. Yeah. Uh, with the late, the late right. Jim Bain. Yeah. Uh, they're left. Now, got 15, me to do that. Those, 15 volumes. Yeah. 15 volumes and counting for the, uh, man seen war series of stories. Right. So is this uh, trilogy going to remain a trilogy or, it, as such, short stories aside. and, and I think it's going to stay a trilogy myself. You don't have any plans beyond it, do you, Greg? No, I don't. I've kind Just, of run out of wonders at the moment. Uh, yeah. We did put an enormous amount of creative thought into these books. That's why they took a decade to write them. I mean, the things in literature can evolve over long times. I mean, I wrote a series called the Galactic Center series, six novels, mm -hmm. but it took a quarter of a century. Do you ever go back and for new editions or in this modern age of 
books never going out of print and being able to change things on the on the fly. Do you guys ever go back and update the science, or do you leave it as it was? I leave it as it was. Me too. Greg, you yeah, wouldn't I, update the science, would you? You'd maybe write it afterward. I have written longer and longer afterwards in my novels. In fact, we wrote afterwards in all three Bowl of Heaven novels. Uh, and I do that in order to kind of clean up the subject in my own mind. Um, I mean, uh, the novel I have coming out next year has uh, something like uh, 5,000 words. And then afterward, just to clear up what was going on and what, is this, what the th thinking behind it is, because I started out as a mathematical physicist, but then I began running experiments. I've done a bunch of experimental physics too, and I have a long career in that. And I've written about as many short stories, roughly 200, as I have scientific papers. But to me, uh, explaining what's in a novel is, is a good exercise, both for me and for the reader, because sometimes it can be very uh, confusing if, if you don't have a, degree, have a degree in physics. And I've always been aware of that. So yeah, I write afterwards, mostly made up of the notes I write to myself, actually, and some diagrams too. Larry, if you had a chance, to go and live in one of your creations. Would you prefer to live on a ring or a bowl of heaven? Uh, give me booster spice or some other way of extending my lifespan. Uh, I'd pick the ring world. It's got a lot of room. It's all hominids. And uh, and there's there's a lot of variety to be had. Are they How all close? hominids? Really? No, no, some of them are puppeteers. What'd you say, Greg? Aren't some right. puppeteers? Some puppeteers. Yeah, and Kazin? Are the Kazin in Ringworld? I'm starting to forget already. Yeah, there are a few of those. Those aren't well, hominids. Mostly it's hominids. Yeah. yeah. They're not even all two-footed either. They're four-footed. In fact, you, you get to explore the great ocean. You're getting as much variety as known space offers. That's true. I, I, I've often thought, I wonder how long these kind of conceptual series will go because other people can come in and use all the background. I mean, look, there are still every year several Sherlock Holmes novels published. Yes. With an agreed upon cultural playground. Yes. And there's a TV show about the daughter of Sherlock Holmes or something, isn't it? Uh, Nobody to stop you from altering Sherlock Holmes as much as you like. Right. But the point is, these cultural artifacts become infinite playgrounds. Um, I mean, I'm reading a novel now that's a detective uh, story set in ancient Athens at the time of Pericles. Mm. <laughs> Why not? Now, it, would you guys mind if anyone wrote fan fiction, so to speak, within uh, any of your universes that you've written about? Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. I would want to see it, but I suppose I would mind them doing it badly. Yes, I agree with Larry. Uh, I'd I, like to I, see it. it I might have be full control of the Nineteen Wars stories. Right. Uh, they come right. in, I decide whether they fit. They mostly always do, but I get to decide. Yeah, that's a good policy. We should probably use that for Bowl of Heaven, too. Uh, yes. We haven't thought about fan fiction. But fan fiction can be so strange and different. I mean, I've had several conversations Save with Joanna Russ, the really good SF, SF writer, now deceased, because she wrote what's called slash fiction about Star Trek, in which uh, Shatner and Nimoy are actually lovers. 
And she found that very interesting for reasons of her own. I've never read any, but she said she was unsurprised that it became a huge genre for women. And you can interpret that as you like, but uh, uh, there are, I'm, I'm told, hundreds of stories and novels written of that kind in which one can find somewhere in the jungle of the internet. Mm. Joanna Russ gave the title to my article, Man of Steel, Woman of Kleenex. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. Really good article. You should publish all your articles in one volume, I think. It would be fun to see them all. Uh, that's a maybe. Yeah. The, the strange thing about all this kind of fan stuff is that you never know where it's going to go. Who would have thought that there would be so much uh, slash fiction? And what's more, <laughs> I would never have anticipated yeah. that there are now the more than a thousand Star Trek novels. Think about that. And it's interesting because they always separate canon versus novels. So the novels are usually not considered canonical in any, any universe they're written in, whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars. But Star Wars, it can become canon. And they sort of self-infect each other sometimes where the, the uh, non-canonical stuff comes in and becomes canon and, you know, things like that. But there really is a rich, a rich, you know, variety of novels written in those kind of franchise worlds. Remember, Pocketbooks controls the Star Trek novels and they govern its use. I actually, some, uh, an editor there asked me if I wanted to write one. And I, because I had worked on the Star Trek Enterprise, the actual TV show, giving them a story arc, and I declined the favor. But uh, the point is they control it and keep it, with, they say, within canon uh, for exactly the reason that it was licensed out of, who was the studio, Paramount? long ago in the 1970s uh, all kinds of people have written that stuff uh, joe haldeman wrote one or two i think and gordon eklund and all kinds of people i know and uh so the the point is it just keeps on going it's been over half a century since star trek and it's still a living dynamic and makes big money in television and movies who knew yeah right? <laughs> Now, one last question before the final question. And this is directed at both of you. Now, for a long time, we've seen speculative science in the framework of the Kardashev scale. Do you think the Kardashev scale is obsolete or badly needs modification or is pretty much spot on still? The Kardashev scale is very useful. Of course, there's room to uh, divide up the scale into smaller chunks. Um, nobody's done it. Uh, nobody's needed to. It's right there for, for whoever needs it. Yes, uh, I discussed this, by the way, in Russian with Kadarshev uh, back in the Soviet Union days. And he said, you know, I got the idea by just thinking about the logarithm of energy. That's really all it is. This is the log of the amount of energy used by a society. Mm. And that's it. But of course, to go beyond the Kadarshev scale, you have to use that of not merely galaxies, but of clusters of galaxies, such as the local group, as we have. Um, and that requires some way of organizing societies over scale in which the communication is time, delay is millennia, right? That means necessarily to make a coherent society, you need societies that last for many millennia. And the longest live human society, as we know, 
is still the oldest large society, the phantocracy of ancient Egypt, which lasted thousands of years. Isn't it interesting that the longest live human society was one that pretended to have a solution to the problem of death? That was the real underlying cause of ancient Egypt. It, it solved the problem of death, which is still the number one human problem and will remain so, I think. If we had a real solution, then we could have an interstellar empire. Well put, yes. If people lived 10,000 years on average, you could have a cluster of galaxy-scale civilization because you could be chatting with them on the intergalactic internet. Yeah, exactly. Then you run into the bus problem because even if you live 10,000 years, there's still occasionally something's going to happen to you that your technology can't fix. <laughs> you get vaporized or something like that. So the longer you go, the less likely it is to continue, even if you make it five to 10,000 years. Which makes with, with a real interstellar uh, intergalactic society, you would, you would get uh, gravity wave generators because you, you could afford the expense Yes, exactly. And you would okay. want to send your messages uh, uninterruptible to, to all of the reaches of the empire. Um, That's right. There might be only one gravity wave generator in the whole galaxy. But a lot of detectors. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, long ago, I did this calculation. If you eliminate all causes of death except accident, that is, all diseases and infirmities go away, how long would humans last? And the answer is 1,400 years. Uh -huh. If, if you only died of accidents. I'd have to see your assumptions. Well, it's just as I stated. I just took the accident rates and fatality rates and, and made that the only cause of death. Mm -hmm. and it's a simple calculation. The, but, but, but the trick is, then what would such a society, once you get up to a thousand years of age, do? They would become very, very careful. <laughs> no driving around in, in your great 1968 Corvette, for example. <laughs> to get past this problem, do either of you envision that humans will ever go for a speculative technology like uploading themselves into some kind of uh, technological cloud or something like that? Like oh, <laughs> essentially course. back yourself up as a, like one would back up a, a phone. Well, there are several hundred people who have already done that at Alcor, the cryonics firm, who are saving only their heads. That, I mean, in hopes that Either you could regenerate a whole body, which I think is really, really far out technology to think about, or else that you could be uploaded into a computer program that thinks it's you. I, I wrote mean, a short story called Rammer that gives my right. opinion on the subject. If, yes. if there's no guarantee that you'd have the money to be revived, uh, somebody would have taken it. Well, that's true. It's always possible there'll be malfeasance, but there are several places in the world, principally Luxembourg, in which you can leave yourself, your frozen head, to inherit an endowment in perpetuity, which is a legal entity available in several countries now, in which if you come out of cryonic freezing, they will pay your costs. And also you'll get the benefit of a good investment that has played out for a century. So you can leave yourself money. And I know people who have done that too, by the way. Mm -hmm. I could give you their names. Um, one of them is famous. <laughs> so essentially, legally, if you die, you have to write a will to leave your head your fortune. Yes. Yeah. Well, you don't have to, but you can, and people have. Yeah. I see. 
which is um, not that that not that different from ancient Egypt, where you fill your tomb with gold and <laughs> everything you could need for the afterlife. Essentially, you've you've willed your fortune to yourself inside your tomb. <laughs> so it's true. sort of a repeat of of history in a way. I was in Kibtuf's tomb when you could actually go in there in the early eighties, and uh, uh, some of the stuff left in the tomb was actual food. Yeah, I'm food. And I, I stand with get smart. It'll never work, but it's certainly worth a try. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> I love that. All right, gentlemen, uh, before, I, before I leave you today, I wanted to ask you one final question. Out of all of the short stories and novels you've ever read in your formative years and beyond, what was your favorite story, the most important story to what you do in writing sci-fi? That's not mm -hmm. easy to pick. But I think I like uh, The Whole Man as a perfect oh, yeah, short story that was very easy to write and won a Hugo Award. Yes. Um, my favorite, you know, my sentimental favorite is a story I wrote in one sitting by dictation called Doing Linen, where linen is L-E-N-N-O-N, about a guy who wants to be recreated as one of the Beatles. I wrote that in 1976, I think sold it to analog because it was so much fun to write i just sat down and dictated it into a tape recorder boom just like that in a couple of hours and it came out just perfectly well i thought um and uh, because i was very busy setting up a large laboratory and i didn't have much time to sit down and type so i used that method it's my favorite just because it's also funny funny is hard yes all right, gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. And everybody check out the Bull of Heaven trilogy, starting with Bull of Heaven, Shipstar, and Glorious. Everybody check that out. Thanks, gentlemen, for joining me today. It was fun. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction John, Author. Wrong channel. No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction Author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. Be sure. And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever! Like, subscribe, and hit the bell! Sell out. What?